One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Endy, the Canadian mattress in a box company. If you have never tried an Endy mattress, try one out today. They have a risk-free 100-night trial. If you do not absolutely love it, they will pick it up for a free return. It is an excellent mattress at an amazing Canadian price, and you'll get $50 off of that when you go to endy.ca and use the promo code CANADALAND. This episode is also brought to you by Simple Tax, the friendly, fast way to file your tax return. Do this now. What are you waiting for? It is easy. Simple Tax's award winning design guides you every step of the way. And when you are done, it is a pay what you want service. There is no catch. You can even choose to pay nothing if that's how you roll. Simple Tax is made by a small Canadian team. And if you have a question or get stuck, they are there to help. See why Canadians love Simple Tax. Go to simpletax.ca slash CanadaLand. Jonathan Goldsby. Hello. Canada Lens News Editor. Yes. Jonathan, on Monday, when the Canadian media and U.S. and international media were all feverishly covering the van attack in real time on every front at the scene of the crime on Yonge Street at Sunnybrook Hospital and online, you were simultaneously covering the media as it covered that story, Mm -hmm. documenting who got it right, who made mistakes, what conclusions were jumped to, and what it all tells us, and it tells us all a lot. Today's episode is entirely dedicated to looking at three aspects of the coverage. We are going to discuss today the almost giddy rush on the part of some journalists to paint this erroneously as an Islamist terror attack. 
We're going to talk about how the American media actually broke details of the story before domestic media did without having a single reporter in the city in some cases. Finally, we will discuss the sadly common modern challenge of news gathering online in the moments after a mass killing, this mad dash to trace somebody's online presence before it is scrubbed or overwhelmed by a sea of falsehoods. Jonathan, mm-hmm. welcome to Candleland Shortcuts. Thanks for having me. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Jed Roche, Jillian Mack, Stephen Beam, Dylan Ford, Natasha Fairweather, Stanley Chan, Daniela Postovsky, and Dana Ashcroft. I support Canada Land because before Canada Land, I didn't really understand the how, the what, and the why behind Canadian reporting and the media. Now I have a tool that can help me understand that and be more critical of the media in a constructive fashion. And once again, Jonathan, this episode is brought to everybody by ND Mattresses. I don't have an ND Mattress, but you have an ND Mattress. Yeah, it's in a box in the basement. When I figure out a way to get my current mattress out of my bedroom without chucking it over the balcony, then we'll figure something out. You're very stubborn. I don't know if I would be able to sit there knowing that I might have a better sleep experience just sitting there in a box in my basement, just waiting to foomp, unfurl, and give me better sleeps than I'm currently getting. Potentially, when I moved into my current place, we had to hoist, or the movers had to hoist our current mattress over the balcony. That won't be a problem with the ND mattress because we can bring it up and it'll just pop out of the box. But we still have the current mattress in our bedroom. And at least, you know, while it was snowing, that was not an ideal time to lower it down over a balcony. So, you know, we'll get around to it eventually. That is more information than I require, but it was nice for a moment there. I actually got more of a sing-song ad pitchman cadence from you than I've ever experienced from you before, and I appreciate that. I think our listeners will appreciate that any mattresses are cheaper than any other mattress in a box you're going to get because they're made in Canada with Canadian materials. They don't have to pay for currency conversion. They don't have to pay customs. They pass those savings on to you, and this is a mattress that is every bit as good or better, according to a lot of people who use them, as all the other mattresses in a box you can get, but they're a lot cheaper, and they're cheaper. Cheaper still, because you listen to this podcast, you will get 50 bucks Canadian off of your ND mattress when you go to ND.ca. That's ENDY.ca, because we've had problems before. Jonathan, thank you. ND.ca and use the promo code CanadaLand. This is a white van that said rider on the side, a rental van. What did the suspect look like? Can't really describe him. The cops had everything blocked off, but I think he was a darker color, like... I would say Middle Eastern. In custody, media are now calling him uh, white. Uh, others who were eyewitnesses, I'm going to try to look for some eyewitnesses while I'm on the ground here. Of course, there were a lot of people. Uh, they say, they, they described him as Middle Eastern. You can see... Words, con- multiculturalism uh, lets you decide which side of the war you want to be on, whether you want to be on the home team or the away team. That's how, that's how good multiculturalism the is. The point is, is that you hear the accent... He's like, I have a gun. I am Yusuto. Doesn't sound Indian, sounds Islamic. Sounds Middle Eastern. And he's got, if you look real careful in the video, a little white Islamic hat on. And it looks like he's wearing the customary nightgowns the men wear. So the point is, 99% of terror is Islamic.
Jonathan, as we speak, the conspiracy theorists are spinning and this thing has momentum that is picking up traction. It's a script that we all know well that is being repeated in the case of this van attack. A lot of American and international alt-right sites are saying this was in fact actually an Islamist terror attack. I believe that Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch with like almost 100,000 followers is, is floating the theory that the guy who was arrested, the Alec Manassian who was arrested, has somehow been swapped out for somebody else for the first court appearance. So the hate machine is in full force. You you traced back the origin of this narrative, and I, and I think that we have to stress that it's very possible they would have come to this conclusion no matter what, mm. in the face of all evidence that this was, in fact, some sort of Islamist terror attack no matter what. But you were able to trace back the way that this particular manifestation of that same plot got started based on a tweet from... Natasha Fatah, a CBC journalist who hosts at CBC News Network. Yes. So on Monday afternoon, I was going to come into the office, but this news happened. So I decided to stay home and watch it and follow along on TV. We don't have a TV in the office. My TV at home has cable and I can rewind things to get accurate quotes and transcriptions. And that's super helpful. So the default channel I was on was CB24, which is generally the best channel for breaking local news coverage. You know, they were had their chopper out there. They were one at a time finding witnesses to talk to, most initially just on the phone. The first person I heard them speak to who had offered a physical description of the subject described him as a regular white dude. A bit later, they had another person on. I was watching the whole interview. I'm not sure what point it consciously registered what he was that you know, he was going on to a physical description, but I rewound it and he described the man. Um, this man, uh, Dave Leonard, told them on the phone. Contrary to what I heard earlier, and I took that to be a reference to the early description of the man as having been white, it appeared the man to me to be a Middle Easternish man. But again, I'm not sure that's what I immediately thought. And then he offered a further unusual qualification, but I can't confirm or deny whether my observation is correct. So, I mean, that's a reasonable witness statement. It's, he was decent degree of self-awareness and sort of assessing his own confidence in his recollection. It and, appeared to me the man was Middle Eastern, but he hedged in a couple different ways. Middle Eastern-ish. I'm not sure that's what I immediately thought. He, and then he said, I can't confirm or deny my own observation, which is, you know, an, an unusual construction. But I think it's kind of clear what he was intending to say with that. I tweeted, you know, I, I transcribed that. I tweeted it. At the same time, uh, Natasha Fatah, CBC News reporter, tweeted, in all caps, breaking, and then uh, witness to truck ramming into pedestrians tells local Toronto TV station that the driver looked wide-eyed, angry, and Middle Eastern. We don't know for sure that Natasha Fatah was watching CP24. It seems very likely she didn't respond to our request to confirm that because I would like to have been able to nail that down. But it was her tweet was 2.36 p.m., which was the same minute that my tweet of the Dave Leonard quote came out. And you out. both, she specifies in her tweet that she got this from a local Toronto TV station. You both tweet at the same time. It seems very, it seems very, very it likely. It seems very likely. And I, I want to say, you know, that Natasha Fatah hasn't responded to our questions. It's very possible given how controversial her tweet became and CBC has responded internally, she may not have the authority to respond to our questions. CBC can get a little bit protective of their people. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's certainly possible. Uh, and that's also understandable. I mean, uh, it would be nice if she had clarified, but that's okay. What happened next? Because both of you see this eyewitness. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is absolutely what journalists do to be on the scene and saying to an eyewitness, tell me what the suspect looked mm -hmm. like to you. And I think it's also consistent with what journalists do for you and Natasha to both tweet. Here's what an eyewitness has said. But it's also but interesting because it's like journalism once removed, right? We are yeah. live tweeting another station's live interview with a witness. And, 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 and we took, apparently took, very, and, you know, presuming that this was the same interview, we took very different things away from it, which is not to say that what she tweeted was necessarily inaccurate. I've asked, could you send me a copy or of a transcript or a clip of the whole interview? I haven't heard back and I, I may not because I would like to be able to assess to what degree 
her tweet was or was not fair and accurate. Well, let's talk because we haven't quite informed everybody as to why this was so consequential. I mean, you tweet, you know, witness Dave Leonard gives CP24 description of driver and then in quotations, contrary to what I'd heard earlier, it appeared the man to be a Middle Easternish man. But again, I'm not sure that's what I immediately thought. Natasha Fatah, presumably based on the same report, she tweeted all caps, hashtag breaking. Witness to truck ramming into pedestrians tells local Toronto TV station that the driver looked wide-eyed, angry, and Middle Eastern. I believe some people have described her phrasing as sensationalistic. I just think that she's from a breaking news cable TV news background and uses that language. It is interesting that she, not that long later, tweeted, another eyewitness to the Young and Shepherd incident describes Van's driver as white, mm-hmm. intentionally hitting people describe it as a terror attack. This is almost a laboratory setting for a certain kind of social media experiment. It's an A-B test. It's an A-B test where the same CBC reporter is conveying secondhand two eyewitness accounts, one account of it being a Middle Eastern-ish, or a, in her words, a Middle Eastern uh, suspect, and in another tweet, same reporter, it's a white suspect. Mm-hmm. Those tweets performed very differently. Yes, they most certainly did. Uh, Her initial tweet appeared to confirm what a number of people on the right and far right had suspected or, you know, now that Barbara Kay has written it as much, secretly hoped would be the case. She's actually said that she hoped that it was an Mm -hmm. Islamic attack. And we can parse that further, but that it would in fact be an example of that type of terrorism occurring in Toronto. And so the... Most of the usual suspects, Toronto Sun columnists and National Sun columnists, including Natasha Fatah's father, Tarek Fatah, who is, to put it very mildly, a a severe critic of Islam, Mm -hmm. uh, jumped on this and took the information from that, both retweeted it and, you know, took the pieces out of context. And once it gets into certain spheres on the hard right, it doesn't take very long to get to the far right. So then you have Faith Goldie. Laura Loomer and Breitbart. Both former Laura Loomer and Faith Goldie, both Both former rebel rebel. media people. And yeah. um, Breitbart, seemingly based on Natasha Fatah's tweet, a headline that they later took down, Middle Eastern terror attack in Toronto. All of this, I mean, I think we can say almost with absolute certainty at this point, is just false. It's not, there's absolutely no evidence or reason to believe that this is an Islamic terror attack. There's there's, there's, Yeah, we uh, we just say that's not true at this point? We can say there is no, we have no basis on which to believe that. And the only hint at a motive we have have uh, relates to a separate ideology. But yeah, no, there's at this time no basis to say that. We don't also don't, I don't believe we know what his nationality is or even. M- many have been quick to point out that that is an Armenian name, but we, yes. we, we don't, you know, we, we wait for perfect confirmation yes. on this. So to finish our tale of two tweets, and this is something that Elamine Abdel Mahmoud of BuzzFeed was the first to point out the one Natasha Fatah tweet reporting an eyewitness thought it was a Middle Eastern uh, looking man. Mm-hmm. That tweet got 1,500 retweets. The other tweet from a different eyewitness identifying the suspect as being white at this moment has 187 retweets. So by an order of magnitude, the world was much more receptive to the suspect being Middle Eastern than white. Natasha Fatah is taking a lot of heat for her one tweet about it being a Middle Eastern looking person. So I think what this shows us is that there is such a will, there's such an enthusiasm by a lot of the people who engage with mass killings, either as quasi reporters, reporters, pundits, there's such a will for it to be, to fit a narrative Mm -hmm. of Islamist terror that 
any crumb provided that lends any credibility is seized upon. And even if it turns out to be erroneous, then we get into the land of conspiracy theory that, that it was not erroneous, it was accurate, and there's been some kind of a cover-up attempt. Or you get into, I mean, there is that element that is still thankfully a fringe, but then you get into elements like Toronto's son columnist Candace Malcolm, who recorded a 10-minute video yesterday morning explaining that, you know, even though we don't know the motives and there's no indication that it's Islamic terrorism, it was, you know, in her words, very clearly ISIS-inspired in yeah. terms of its tactics. And you did a roundup of, and it was actually quite a few Sun-affiliated people, including Tarek Fatah, Candace Malcolm, Anthony Fury, mm. who- Sue Ann Levy. Sue Ann Levy, who alternately used language that was pointing in that direction, either calling it a terror attack. I mean, I don't even know, uh, maybe we can call it mm. that. Sue Ann Levy retweeted Infowars Paul Joseph Watson, uh, a tweet which referred to it as a jihadist attack, though Levy has since attempted to clarify that it wasn't the jihadist part of the tweet she was responding to, but rather uh, the part about meritory uh, virtue signaling. That's also a part of this preordained narrative is that as soon as we had, you know, John Tory and Justin Trudeau saying anything about peace and harmony or people working together, like then, oh, the narrative, you're soft mm. on terror. And it, it all kind of suggesting this looks now like it's just a completely different thing. Then it looks it certainly is is looking that way. I mean, we still don't exactly know. I mean, we have a bit of a bit of context that we can parse and we will surely we have been and we surely will be for the yeah. next while. Jonathan, it feels like in this instance, people affiliated with the Toronto Sun out rebelled the rebel that in perpetuating and legitimizing the conception that this was an Islamist terror attack, we have in Toronto several people that we've named. And in a way that, you know, back when the rebel was covering things like the Quebec mosque shooting and perpetuating a conspiracy theory that this was, in fact, there was a Moroccan accomplice, all this falsehood that Faith Goldie was involved with. Mm -hmm. Now it seems like that has moved and the Toronto Sun has picked up the slack and Ezra perhaps knows to lean back. I don't know. I wasn't following Ezra as closely. I mean, he's blocked me on Twitter, so now I have to sort of make it a conscious effort to go to load an incognito window to take, take a look at this timeline. So, you know, there was stuff there. David Menzies was not surprisingly the person the rebel had at the scene talking about it. I haven't bothered to watch his reports, reports used very loosely. And so I think partly it might be a matter of resources. The Toronto Sun has vastly more frontline people, columnists on staff than the rebel does now. The rebel is, I mean, the rebel probably has a decent sized staff overall, but it has very few people on the ground in Canada left. Mm -hmm. uh, it's David Menzies in Toronto, Sheila Gunn-Reed in Alberta, and Ezra himself. And I'm not sure if they've added anyone else. So part of it, I think, is a matter of threadbare. They, they don't they don't have that many people left to have that kind of interaction with a local story. Yeah, I don't know if, if it's an editorial shift. Like, if but I do think just, just wait for some of the facts to come out before you start punditing. You know, might be a, just a, a self interested lesson that they took, or maybe they just don't have the resources. But I do think you're absolutely right in that the Toronto Sun. I don't know if I would go so far as to say they've out rebelled the rebel, but it is definitely over the past few years moved further and further in that direction of Islamic panic. Helpfully, there's no need to read between the lines or make any inferences because Barbara Kay is just explicit. Barbara Kay who uh, writes for Post Media, and I think she appears in both uh, National Post and the Toronto I Sun. I don't know Th if it's in print in the Sun. This, no. was in the, this was in the National Post where she wrote that, as you mentioned earlier. But I will cop, what she wrote was, but I will cop to extreme selfishness in saying I would have preferred if this had been an act of jihadism or something else linked to a clear ideology or cause, because I like to be able to think about things in the long term. I prefer mental order to chaos, that latter bit being a Jordan Peterson reference. That is an extraordinary statement, that she would have preferred that the attack have been a jihadist attack, as opposed to what it looks like it might be, which is a misogynistic, hateful attack from an incel, and also a person who I think has other problems. Uh, I, but I'm also, I'm kind of in 
more I've thought about this, the more I'm in awe of the honesty of that, because I do think this is a thing that underpins a lot of conservative thought, not like a wish for jihadist terror, but this desire for order and neatness above all things is easy, straightforward, direct ways to conceptualize of things, particularly in terms of good and evil, us and them. Mm -hmm. And her column pretty much is about that, about how... And it's not in and of itself wrong to say that the idea of an abstract violence in a vacuum for no discernible reason is potentially scarier than, than violence for a cause, because how do you address something that has no explanation? But, they're, they're, of, they're, they're, but of course, you know, violence doesn't exist in a vacuum. These things, there, there is always a cultural context. There is always something. And I don't think if it were this, you know, this incel culture, this violent misogyny, I don't think Barbara Kay has the capacity or the tools to recognize that necessarily. But Jonathan... He gave his reason, and it's no more or less chaotic than the reason the jihadists give. His reason was to rid the world of Chads and Stacys. No, but I'm saying, is right? That, well, yeah, of course, uh, I'm so saying I don't really think Barbara. What we're talking about here is Barbara Kay's ability. I don't to, think she would understand that. Well, I don't. That, I don't think. I think that's outside. I think that's outside of her own conceptual framework, which is not not meaning to excuse her or everything. I'm saying that's but that's course, basically her error is that she's not able to incorporate things outside of her already easy, neat conceptual framework, and however, or let alone recognize any role that she or her own writing may have had in reinforcing certain notions that may underpin uh, this culture. Well, that that's just it, is that Barbara Kay has more reason than most people to understand where Manassian was coming from because Barbara Kay is affiliated with the men's rights movement. Most people would have no idea what all but of this- But that also presumes she has a degree of self-awareness, and I don't think that's the case in this instance. Yeah, I think we're really just talking about one person's own prejudices and, and preconceptions about mm -hmm. what is what is a orderly enemy and what is, a, mm -hmm. what is an enemy that she can't fathom. But I do think it's a fascinating insight into that particular mindset. Having read this, it now makes me understand that I think a lot of her columns come from that whole Grandpa Simpson, I used to be cool line. You know, he said, um, I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it anymore. And what's it seems weird and scary. And that's, I think, you can look at a lot of Barbara Kay columns and a lot of pundit columns, a lot of reactionary pundit columns through that lens of like, you know, what's it these days is weird and scary to me. I don't understand it. Let's try to put it back into some sort of box I can't understand. All right. Well, if people want to actually just read a very exacting deconstruction of how this apparently totally false narrative that is now an international narrative of this van attack being a jihadist attack, if they want to look at how that grew, they can look at your report on our website at canadalandshow.com. We are going to move now to a developing story in Toronto where a van jumped a curb on a busy street and mowed down pedestrians. CBS sources have identified the suspect as 25-year-old Alec Manassian. A source tells CBS News the suspect was known to police, but they haven't released any additional details as to motive. Jonathan, the next thing I want to talk about with you is this really odd thing that happened a couple times as this news broke. I was watching online and, you know, the same questions get asked, you know, you're waiting for a name. And finally, we got one and it came to us not through Canadian media. Not initially, no. The first news organization to mm -hmm. report the name Alec Manissian was CBS News. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, CBS does not have a reporter on the ground in Toronto. Not on a regular basis that I'm aware of, no. Later, once you know the name, the question becomes, what's the motive? And the hunt is on to find if this person left any breadcrumbs uh, mm -hmm. suggesting that. I saw screen grabs of this Facebook post with this incel, involuntary, celibate-coded, mm -hmm. uh, 4chan-y sounding thing. I was watching different people cast a lot of suspicion and doubt. And for the, good reason. For very good reason. It looked like it was almost written in order to be like a pastiche of well, that kind that, of- that was the biggest red flag of all, is the fact that if a 4chan or 4chan person wanted to 
create a hoax of this nature. That is exactly what they would write. Yeah. And I was very much, you know, before it was verified by anyone, the National was doing a look at incel and looking at this previous case of an incel-inspired mass mm-hmm. murder. I, and I thought, you know, this is like a little premature. We don't have this verified yet. No Canadian news organization has verified this. So there was, as far as we could tell, there was certain, like, you know, I still like unnamed law enforcement sources, etc. But there were news organizations reporting that, uh, American news organizations reporting that they'd independently heard about this, right. this connection. Whether that connection was simply referring back to the same Facebook image as everyone else, it wasn't initially clear, but uh, at least one reporter one, one went on Twitter to say, like, no, 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 this, we're not, we're not, no, of course we're not going to space on this Facebook thing. We have heard this separately. It, this is not about that. I see. Either way you slice it, you have American news organizations sort of leading and giving credibility to this. And in fact, taking quite a bit of flack as a lot of people actually, including, you know, Faith Goldie and Ezra Levant, who I think were still pushing a, a Islamist terror angle, said, oh, you've been trolled by 4chan. Uh, hmm. The media has been trolled by 4chan. You've been fooled. This is obviously fake. Which was the you know, oh, there initially was the most, the sure. most likely case. Now, when the first bit of information came through American news channels, the name Alec Manissian. Mm. I said, isn't this odd? I tweeted uh, that CBS has this first. And Norman Spector, the former Canadian ambassador to Israel. You can't see me rolling my eyes when you said this. Um, and current Twitter. Uh, Troll. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Grump, maybe troll. He responded and said, to my question, why would American media have this first? Norman Spector said, Canadian security informs U.S. security ASAP and they grease U.S. media. So he's very quickly saying, oh, here's what happened. Canadian law enforcement knew the guy's name, told U.S. national security. That part, I'm I'm sure they did. I'm sure they run the name uh, Mm -hmm. against the database. And then U.S. Law enforcement would pass would leak that to U.S. media if they ask. Like I mean, that did seem like that did and still seems to me like the most plausible explanation. I don't okay, know if so I use the word the verb grease. The idea of that as a verb at all is gross. But um, no, that he, makes sense because why would U.S. Uh, national security be leaking information to U.S. media? It's because there's a bit of a cronyism and a, an exchange of favors that happens between those two uh, institutions. I, I, I don't know the motives, but I also imagine that there's there's less at stake for them and sharing that information. It's Let's not, back up a second okay. here because I was skeptical when Norman Spector seemed to just have this authority to know what had happened. I said, well, I guess that's a theory, but I don't know what evidence you have for that. And you were the one who said, actually, that's the most likely thing that happened here. Why do you think that that is likely that you've got Canadian reporters who have deep institutional beat knowledge with Canadian cops? You'd think that they're on the ground, they're on the scene, they could pick up the phone and call their sources in the police force. And I'm sure they did. And yet the first news organization that was able to correctly name Alec Minissian was you know somebody in the states picking up a phone and talking to an American mm. national security source, getting that name and getting it right before anyone in this country. Our entire news organization resources of all of our different news organizations was unable to do what CBS was able to do. Why? Or CBS was able to do it faster. Might be more accurate. Well, they but... were they were all trying to do it faster. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, CBS and others. I I can't remember if specifically in respect to the name or in respect to other details they reported. You know, cited you know unnamed U.S. law enforcement sources. So it was not – for them to have that, it was not at all implausible that U.S. law enforcement would be given that information by Canadian law enforcement and U.S. law enforcement would have less reason not to share it. Like what – the stakes presumably aren't the same for them. Their responsibility isn't the same and they may just simply have a better relationship with a given reporter or a given thing. The person might know exactly who to call to give it and the person – and, uh-huh. you know, the source might be like, sure, here, here you go. What does it matter to me? It happened the next day as well, you know, when CNN ran as fact – that the incel Facebook post was real. They put out there, this is this is an accurate thing. I questioned the reporter, Michelle Krupa, and I said, like, what's your sourcing on this? And Krupa told me, oh, we know this is true because we have a paid analyst, not a journalist, but a, a law enforcement analyst, Josh Campbell, who used to be an FBI agent. And Josh Campbell says that he has it 
from Canadian investigators. That Canadian investigators, and, and specifically investigators who were investigating this crime, told some former FBI guy who works for CNN, and that this turned out to be true, this is a legitimate Facebook post, and therefore CNN had that news before any Canadian news source was able to verify it. I can't pretend to have any deep insight into how police sources work. Police can be the most difficult and frustrating. Especially in Canada. This is, why I want, this is what I, I mm. want to ask you about, because I know that you haven't done the same kind of autopsy of this as you had the first mm. topic we discussed. But there is uh, a frequent complaint among Canadian journalists that law enforcement is incredibly tight with information. Oh, yeah. And in the States, you know, getting the mugshot, getting the details, getting all kinds of information about crime and suspects, it seems like there's a lot more. Uh, oh, yeah. There, there's no question that that generally speaking, is absolutely the case that the United States information uh, with regard to the justice system, with regard to courts, with regard to government, pretty much every level of government is much more, tends to be much more freely and readily available than it is in Canada, regardless of which institution you're talking about. That's that's absolutely the case. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there are exceptions, but it is one hell of a thing when you can just like submit a request for you know, records from the Florida Department of Transportation and they'll fucking, you know, ship it out, you know, go into some of their warehouse, get these boxes of this old deposition, scan them in and email them to you. It won't cost you anything. It'll do it like in two days uh-huh. as opposed to here where you'd probably have to spend years appealing cost estimate of like $50,000. Yeah. I guess there might be two things that work here, which is like a culture and a process that, yeah. is, that works there that is broken here. And also- I mean, Yeah. Freedom of information isn't directly comparable to what we're talking about sources, but I'm saying, but there is definitely a different larger culture of information, especially around government and criminal matters. Yeah being more readily available. You can Google things there that here you would have to go into a courthouse and plead with a court staffer to please photocopy for you. It is concerning to me that information that is so tightly held in Canada, as soon as it is shared with American law enforcement, all bets are off and we lose control of it. And, and one thing about that, Jonathan, is that like they sometimes get it wrong. And in fact, they got like a little a little part of it wrong. In this case, uh, MSNBC had uh, this former New York City police commissioner on who incorrectly stated that law enforcement sources are indicating that the individual in custody is known to the police, right? So while two of the major facts we got from U.S. media were correct, this other one, did this guy have priors? Was he known to police? Was he a suspect? That turns out to not be true. Uh, Canadian law mm. enforcement had no prior knowledge of Alec Manissian and MSNBC talking to a former, all of these like information sources not being journalists, but being like former law enforcement people themselves trading information with each other. I find it pretty disconcerting. I took this as, you know, coming off of our my conversation with uh, Catherine Porter of the New York Times, like there just seems to be more and more evidence of a, a globalization of the information flow and, you know, our kind of like uh, autonomy and whatever whatever weirdnesses are baked into the Canadian news ecosystem are just becoming like overwhelmed as we get plugged into, you know, when, when a story happens here that's international, all of those Canadian practices are off. But that's not necessarily the case with everything. Um, Rob Ford being another quintessential, uh, being a very long running story. Where well, that one proves my point, right? That Gawker swooped yeah. in and, and broke that story in a way that uh, Canadian media was unwilling to. Unwilling is not the correct word. We should not case. rehash the okay. entire. Uh, Gawker going first, though, I think, is germane, but you and I can argue more later. I, I guess I take this all as just another sign of the times. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Jonathan, we are going to thank our second sponsor today, another Canadian company called Simple Tax. Simple Tax is the friendly and fast way to file your tax return. It is totally CRA compliant. It's built to be compatible with CRA. They have award-winning design that just guides you through the process. You know what? Jonathan, you know what's out there. There's tons of software for filing your tax return. You got a lot to choose from. I don't, I prefer using an accountant. And that is your prerogative. Some people like spending more money than they have to. Not only is the fee that you pay your accountant optional with Simple Tax, but they guarantee that they maximize your return. And they're betting basically that you're going to be so happy with the size of your return that you'll kick them a few bucks at the end. It is a pay-what-you-want service. You get every feature at a price that you believe is fair. There's no catch. You can even choose to pay nothing. Is it at least better than Radiohead's pay-what-you-want albums? It is better than Radiohead's pay-what-you-want albums. Yeah, I'm going off script here. It is better than In Rainbows. Simple Tax, it is better than In Rainbows. Go to simpletax.ca slash CanadaLand. We are going to duly note, Jonathan, things that otherwise would have been the main topics on today's Shortcuts. You want to go first? Uh, We can duly note that Patrick Brown, the former leader of the Ontario PC party, did in fact actually file an honest-to-goodness lawsuit, that is to say a real statement of claim with a court against CTV News. Shut my mouth. I I think I am on record saying I doubted he was going to come go through with it. Yeah, no, even last week you were mentioning that you were thinking that 30 30 days or whatever the window was coming up and like, you know, is it going to happen? And you were kind of skeptical it would. And so a suit with Superior Court against CTV, Division of Bell Media, Bell Media, Wendy Friedman is the head of their news department, Lisa Laflamme, Glegg McGregor, Rachel Ariello, who are the reporters Rachel in the story. Rachel the young reporter who I think this potentially could have been a career-making story for her. Maybe it still will it's be. Still, I think it still will be. But uh, now is named in a lawsuit. Yeah. And, you know, a bunch of other people, Jane or John Doe's, who worked on the story, as well as CP24's Travis Danraj, for reasons that even after reading the suit are slightly less clear to me. Interesting. Uh, Patrick Brown's lawyer is Julian Porter, the father of your guest from Monday's episode. Catherine Porter's father is Patrick Brown's lawyer. Yes. And it's, you know, it's an interesting lawsuit in trying to establish the degree of damages that 
Brown is ostensibly owed. It's, you know, it goes on about like how well received the People's Guarantee was, even receiving an endorsement by the Toronto Star, a newspaper that has a history of endorsing left-leaning political candidates and parties. Just to explain this to people, the size of a lawsuit is, you know, equivalent to what the price tag you put on the damages. In this case, you know, if he was in fact liable, what were the damages? In in Canadian settlements for libel suits, usually $100,000 would be big, Mm $200,000. He's asking for $8 million Mm -hmm. because not only did they tank his prospects of being premier, which, which he says was a lock, but they perverted the course of democracy. <laughs> Mr. Brown fundraised, and that was an unfortunate typo, he fundraised millions of dollars and modernized the ONPC party by expanding the appeal of the ONPC party to cultural communities marching in Toronto's pride parade, taking steps to combat Islamophobia and addressing climate change. No mention there of uh, the alleged voter fraud. Uh, Not that I saw. Okay, he's going to have to prove that they practiced journalism improperly. A lot of people say, well, they did. They got the age of the uh, accuser wrong. She wasn't a minor, and that's really damaging to say that, you know, he did this with a minor and she wasn't a minor. As far as I understand the, the law, unless they knew that at the time, there is room for journalists to get things wrong. There is room for journalists to get things wrong so long as they did their due diligence, which includes giving the subject of a story an adequate and reasonable opportunity to respond. That and, is and the one point where I feel like they are most vulnerable. I think from having read the suit, I do think his strongest argument and the one, certainly the one uh, that I'm most looking forward to a court ruling on, if, if it gets to that stage of an actual judgment, is whether they've given him enough time. The other interesting point is that the statement of claim argued that Brown was also not not just given not enough time, but not enough information to adequately respond to the claims. Yeah, that that might give us some guidelines too. That's interesting too. That is, if this isn't settled out, and so yeah, I mean, no, exactly. Like if if it gets to the stage where a judge ultimately rules on it. I'm very curious what precedence those would set. Well, we'll talk about this again three years from now when this is all done with the, through the courts. Mm-hmm. Duly noted. I'm going to quickly duly note another piece of journalism of yours, Jonathan, and it's also about the Toronto Sun, which we discussed uh, in detail a little bit earlier. A lot of people saw this story. It was a very big story where you got leaked a document, an editorial strategy document from management at the Toronto Sun, an extraordinary document that uh, a lot of different reporters, including Don Martin, said in, in my decades of political reportage, I've never seen anything like this. And what it detailed was a preordained editorial focus with marching orders for pundits, opinion writers, and reporters alike. I mean, I don't know if I would necessarily characterize it as marching orders. Okay, let me let me rephrase what... because we, we don't know that this was ever actually given. I mean, in fact, it seems that it was not given to reporters themselves. It was a plan for what the reporters were expected to do. How this was going to be conveyed or controlled is another story. But what this does tell us is that at the executive level of the Toronto Sun, they basically had a plan for what the news was going to be and how it was going to be conveyed and what the framework and lens was going to be before news occurred. And that was a plan that essentially read like Doug Ford's election strategy, like his platform itself. It was a list of... I think it's arguably more coherent than any Doug Ford platform so far. <laughs> it, it was a pretty comprehensive list of the evils of, the, of Kathleen Wynne's government, the failures of that government, and how, you know, basically whatever happens, this is the story that we're going to tell. This, I think, inspired a really interesting conversation where a lot of people said, oh, big deal. It's not like the Toronto Star doesn't have a bias. Every newspaper has a bias. So what? So so at, le- at least the Sun is honest about it. I mean, they're not honest about it. This was a secret document that we... Mm-hmm. Uh, that even its own reporters and staff hadn't seen. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point that people are making. And I think it tells us something about the newsreader that people have become so jaded that they just think, oh, of course, newspapers have plans for preordaining news coverage before news events occur. If that was something that the readers thought was no big deal, that is not 
something you can say about Toronto Sun writers, many of whom came forward, Laurie Goldstein, uh, Sue Ann Levy, Tarek Fatah, to proclaim their complete editorial independence, that they're allowed to say whatever they want to say. And on behalf of the reporters of the Toronto Sun, the union said, this is not something that we're okay with. So uh, this is obviously a problem for any self-respecting journalist. Now, it may be true that Sue Ann Levy, Laurie Goldstein, and Tarek Fatah feel that they can write whatever they want for the Toronto Sun, but that is not something that the Toronto Sun is willing to also say. That is true. I mean, in the case of the columnists they have, it is probably largely redundant because the columnists there are, are all genuinely of this stripe. You know what they're going to say anyhow. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any conflict or surprise there. Although, of course, they, once again, they did resent the idea that they weren't coming by these opinions honestly, and I, I don't doubt that they do. But particularly with the reporters, it was, especially the ones named in the document, for whom this was much more damaging. I mean, people were openly calling, essentially calling them propagandists on Twitter. I think um, it's, it's disastrous for their sense of themselves as professionals and possibly, you know, if this is left unchecked and unchallenged by them, it's disastrous for their career prospects. By by them being, like, I think left unchecked and challenged by management, I think it's ultimately, and certainly the union thing and the staff thinks ultimately management's responsibility to clarify what this document's intended purpose was and the intent that their journalists do in fact have independence and integrity. But for whatever reason or combinations of reasons that they have yet to elaborate on, management has not done that and has given no indication that they're interested in doing that at all. Well, that is another piece that people can check out online on our website if they haven't seen it already. Duly noted. Okay, finally, Jonathan, let's get back to the van attack. This is just something that I, that I, you know, I've been thinking about. I mean, and it's sadly becoming a common practice. We are changing the conception of what it means to cover breaking news when a mass killing happens, because the classic conception of like get to the scene of the crime and cover what happens. Where is the scene of the crime? Young and Finch was obviously the scene of this tragedy, but the scene of the crime could just as equally be described as online. And there is a race on to as soon as you know the name of the suspect the valid, verified social media breadcrumbs of that suspect, it's only a matter of time before they disappear. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with the analogy. I mean, the scene of the crime is still Young Street between Shepard and Finch, but the online, the online isn't the scene of the crime so much as like, that's the suspect's apartment and we can all go there and look and look through you it. You may very well learn a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, you're trying to find out who, who did this and why they did it as much as you're trying to find out what happened yes. uh, physically. It's more like that we all have access to the person's home and we can all comb through it for clues. We can, but the problem is that as soon as that name is public, Facebook is going to pull that because their community standards precludes uh, mass killers using their platform for propaganda and for suicide notes. Probably reasonable. Uh, which is reasonable, but what it means is that the good information is about to disappear and the bad information starts flooding in. And this is what happens now in news gathering is that uh, you are in a position where you're trying to get the right stuff before it is archived or just uh, inaccessible. And so this is part of what you were doing when news came out is as soon as we had Alec Minnesian's uh, name, but there's dangers there because A, there's false positives, there's other Alex Minnesians and Alec Minnesians, and just as soon as that name is out there, people are putting up all kinds of fake bullshit uh, to perpetuate either uh, that's how they get their kicks or to perpetuate a narrative. And, you know, as I watch this all unfurl, I, you know, I'm very far away from all of this and I know, like, be very careful, Jesse, who you retweet, what you say, you do not want to perpetuate the wrong narrative here. And one of the few tweets, I was just screen grabbing stuff to help you in your efforts, one of the few things I tweeted was that there was an Alex Minnesian who wrote a public post saying, I'm not the guy you're looking for. Leave my family alone. Please, media, leave me alone. And he had that listed as public. 
And so I thought, well, this guy wants the world to know he's not the guy. I'm going to retweet that so everyone who follows me knows this is not your suspect. Ishmael Darrow at BuzzFeed was quick to come at me and say, Jesse, I strongly advise you to take that tweet down because you may actually be directing more abuse to this false positive. I'm not sure what the right thing to do was, but when in doubt, I said, you know what? My intent, of course, was just to shield this guy from abuse, but I don't want to play a role in making mm-hmm. things worse. So I deleted the tweet and said so. Your screen cap had a substantial portion of his profile on it. And I, I think as opposed to just limiting it to the message from him, which I yeah. think I think I it's a bit of a nuance there, but I feel like you can get like, I mean, I, I know a lot of other people tweeted their stuff, you know, the screen cap of his message, which, you know, had his name and his you know, avatar in a circle in it. And I didn't hear anything about that. Best practices might be to, to think about the screen grab, which yeah, I, I'm cropping mean... it. I didn't even think about that. So let's talk about that. I mean, this is what prevented a lot of people from repeating the incel stuff because it looked so suspicious. Separating, mm-hmm. you know, the signal to noise ratio, figuring out what's good, what's bad. Any reflections on that so soon after you had to make those decisions? So that. Facebook post from the Alec, A-L-E-K Manassian, the apparently real one, certainly started floating around pretty quickly. It raised a lot of very obvious red flags for every journalist because, especially ones who know anything about 4chan or online culture, because it reads a red like what a 4chan person would write as a hoax. And therefore, is like, this cannot possibly be real. And there are all sorts of little discrepancies. The first image to come out was like a screenshot, was like a photograph of it being displayed on someone's phone with the time on the phone being 3.15 p.m. or 3.15. The post said it was an hour earlier. It's like, oh, how could that be an hour earlier? He Just was bright already, red he was flags already in waving in every direction. There's all sorts of stuff. But the more I looked into it, the more other people looked into it, the more information I got, All these things that should have been pointing towards, you know, debunking it actually started to suggest, started to accumulate, suggesting that maybe it actually is real. And it became more and more and more likely with each bit of information. It's like, okay, this is, these are things like this has, he went to Thornley Secondary School, which at that point had not been reported by anyone. It also showed a few of his friends that there was another, there's another one that was uh, this actual screenshot that had, yeah, had some friends and people, someone had contacted me saying like he had talked to a friend of a friend who didn't like there was enough that indicating this was his actual profile then just searching 4chan i found someone had indeed archived the page uh using archive.is and those are much more difficult to falsify not not impossible but those are more more difficult to falsify and from that we could figure out that according to that archive the post was shared at i believe it was 127 p.m yeah and the other thing is facebook says like it'll say one hour ago right up until one hour and 59 minutes ago it doesn't switch over until until the two hour mark yeah so the timing actually worked out in the 127 the police chief had just said that the the first 911 call would come in at approximately 126. All of it started to indicate what would have been an unusual, though not unheard of, amount of effort to perpetrate a hoax. If you look at the other way, try to reverse engineer the hoax, then that becomes less likely. So on, on all these, then there are all these different elements. Like you can backdate posts on Facebook, but you can only do it to like five minute increments. And there's like a little a clock thing that appears. Like there are all sorts of little things that would have been extraordinarily difficult. Oh. They're not. They're not impossible. It's very you know what, Jonathan? Because I saw that you were suggesting before CNN said no, we verified this the night before. You were saying it's looking increasingly likely that it's true, and I was like, why? Where? We didn't have a chance to talk about this. I was thinking like, how is Jonathan reaching that conclusion? And I guess there's just all these little technical factors that you can kind of add up and say, is it possible for somebody to have spoofed this? Looking increasingly likely, like it could be legit. I was not saying more likely than not that 
it was legitimate, but rather that the idea that it could be legitimate was starting to look likely. Like that is to say, for a lot of people, their instincts were to write it off immediately. And like there there were many excellent reasons to be skeptical and suspicious. Mm-hmm. And frankly, there there's still remote possibilities of ways it could have been falsified. I'm not exactly sure what those are, but you know, until police or prosecutor, until someone definitively offers evidence that they'd found it on his phone as a sent message or whatever. But there were many, many excellent reasons to be skeptical, but there was also an inclination for people to dismiss it, write it off, declare it as absolutely fake. Whereas I thought that was a mistake because all these little things were building up to show indicating that there was a very real possibility that it was real, which now per police and per Facebook seems to be the case. I mean, the question now at this point is more, do we know for a fact that he wrote it? I don't think we know that for a fact as of yet, but once again, it's extremely difficult to imagine under what circumstances that would not be the case. It's interesting to me, of course, to see the level of care that you take with this kind of stuff and the techniques used. And I think that in a lot of examples across the board, Canadian media really came together and, and worked diligently and, and hmm. handled themselves like, you know. Matt Bragg like, at CBC did a really good job of this. CBC, I, Les Perot's stuff for the Globe and Mail, looking into Alec Minnesian, I thought was really like level and even-handed and they got interesting yeah. new stuff. The Toronto Star, how many people were, were, were there credited? There are 22 reporters credited on the front page story the next day. When stuff like this happens, the level of care people take and sense of duty people have to just stay all night if they have to. The problem is, is that, you know, the lie travels three times around the globe before the truth gets out the door. And a handful of people who I think are pretty reckless with the suggestions and their language and the type of inferences that they make have a very rabid and hungry appetite for their message. And it's not the diligence that goes into the news gathering. It's the compatibility of their message with what this... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a larger sociocultural problem that is affecting the whole world at this point. I think... It is. If nothing else, I think we can be proud that Canadian journalists did a really good job on this story and have so far. Let's leave it there for now then. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. We includes you, but where can people find you specifically, Jonathan? Uh, certainly, I spend a lot of time on Twitter uh, at Goldsby, G-O-L-D-S-B-I-E, as B as in Bob, I, I guess. Or you can email me, Jonathan, at CanadaLandShow.com. The site where Jonathan's journalism is published is called CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Selling a little? 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.